So, welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast, where we explore young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. I'm your host, Simon, and I'm super excited to be back from the summer and dive right into the topics of plan for this so-called season of ours coming up. And today's podcast is a great start to this. Uh, with the State of the Union on the eve, I'd wager that von der Leyen's presidency of the commission will be remembered as an era of crises where event after event occurred that threatened the security of our union. But given that, moving forward, how do we prepare against the crises of tomorrow? Well, a big part of the European Commission's answer is the June 2023 European Economic Security Strategy. So, what is this? And can it really make Europe more resilient? Joining me to dive into the specifics of all these big and small questions is a man who I've known for quite some time, Gareth. Thanks, Simon. Good to be here. Good to catch you on your busy trip to London and hopping around the world. I think it's only only 10 countries this year, but um, there we are. Before we make you out to be too much of an elusive man of mystery, can you tell us a bit about what you do in your life? You know, what, what, why I've asked you to come on and share your expertise here today? So I suppose if we went back to the beginning and uh, touched a little bit upon how you and I met and where we were and what we were doing, that's, that's probably helpful to the listeners. Yeah. Um, so I, well, you and I met at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where I was studying political economy. And while I was there, I was very heavily focused on sort of China in Europe and thinking about economic security, all of the things that that entails and national security also, particularly in the context of technology. So what are the strategic implications of Chinese investors, for example, buying up some of the best tech that's out there in all manner of sectors in Europe? And what does that mean for the European industrial base, its resilience, uh, and crucially, I suppose, its strategic autonomy, the buzzword that every, online, on everyone's lips. So that's that's where I think you and I initially crossed paths. I should point out to the listeners that I actually set Simon up with his first podcast, but we'll uh, we'll brush over uh, that. We will brush over that. Um, you were an esteemed guest on a few episodes, that's all I'll say. But <laughs> And um, yeah, so today I, I head up the government relations team of a, a software company based in Eindhoven in the Netherlands called The Tenor. And I'm very much speaking in my own capacity and not theirs. But what we do there is we build open source intelligence tools to enable governments to talk to or rather observe what's going on in the industrial techno-industrial landscape in China um, to understand where they are on a comparative level um, and also to help them with due diligence tasks with relation to investment screening and uh, export control and things like that, which I think fall into uh, the bucket of economic security strategy we're going to touch upon today. So that's where I suppose I come into the yeah, mix. Yeah, it's an exciting mix, especially given as I was characterizing our era of crises we were living in beforehand, given all these threats that we're seeing these days. And I guess on that note, I want to quickly ask your perspective. Do you think we are living, given in the past four years or so, in an era of crises? Is, is the geopolitical scene becoming more fraught for us poor European states day by day? I mean, it's a good question. I, I suppose in the in, in the long historical trajectory, one might argue that when was the last time we were not in a state of crisis from someone's perspective? Um, so I'm always a little bit wary of sort of signaling emergencies and, and whatnot. Um, there's always flashpoints, but we <laughs> we don't live in a stable world. We never have because there's, there's motion, right? So I think it would be fair to say we're now living in a period in which the unipolar moment is very much dead. I don't think that people believe that the United States is a, is a, 
is a superpower that's going unchallenged in the world. And I think that in Europe, we have political instability, polarization, economic stagnation. We're still reeling from, from a natural disaster in the pandemic, of course. So you might say that we're, we're living in a period of crisis, but I would say we're living in a period of, of flux mm. in which certain structures and previously held assumptions no longer hold in that sort of post-Cold War era. And I think that the, the sense of, let's call it uncertainty, why people may be considering it crises, is because there's, uh, there's new shifts in the world and people are unfamiliar, so they're, they're trying to grasp onto that new reality and make sense of it all. So may, maybe, in fact, to answer your question in a more succinct way, a period of crisis is a moment in which people, individuals, polities, whole societies are recalibrating their view of the world and their perception of reality. And I think that that's something that's going on now. And that extends to concepts, ideas, actual experienced actions. The only one that stands apart is perhaps the the ongoing war in the Ukraine. I think that's a clear flashpoint of crisis, right? Uh, Returning to the European continent is something that no one foresaw, particularly beyond those in the security services, perhaps. That we can signal is a really big crisis. There's no doubt. But I think other stuff is simply the recalibration of economic orders and so on that's taking place is, is just meaning that we're wrestling with new concepts. Averia, you're showing your political historian colors in that answer, really driving on the lessons of the past to influence what comes tomorrow. But I think it, it's also interesting, maybe for our listeners might, might not be aware, but what is this concept of economic resilience and how does it tie into this era of crises that we've been seeing? I suppose one always needs to keep an eye on the horizon, if you like. Just because a risk is unlikely doesn't mean its Im- its impact, if it were to occur, is is in some way more limited. Um, but maybe this is actually like a good point to focus on in terms of the risks that are identified in the strategy document itself, the economic security strategy. Should we should we introduce a document first, then, very quickly? Yeah, I, th- I think it probably makes sense. So, like you mentioned um, earlier this year, it was passed in the European Parliament, and the Commission published their economic security strategy, and maybe. The easiest way to consider it is to consider its principal objectives, its, or rather its goals, its aspirations, and the inherent risks that it currently perceives in the world, um, and, and hence, its, hence its genesis as a, as a strategy for the, for the European community. So to run very quickly through the primary goals, one is to promote the European economic base and its competitiveness. Two is to safeguard uh, what we've already got um, in terms of capability and do so against future risk as well. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, it seeks to partner with like-minded countries on shared concerns with relation to our respective economies and then the, the whole bucket of things that come under the banner of trade and investment, you might say. Um, in terms of the risks they identify Again, as a sort of experience from the pandemic, supply chain resilience. Secondly, critical infrastructure and physical or cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, um, of which they could be many and varied. The third one is tech security, technological security and technological leakage, which I suppose in some ways is actually related to critical infrastructure. Um, But you might say that on a strategic level, I was in the past analysing that through the prism of foreign direct investment in European companies. So that's kind of what that's talking about. And then the fourth risk, which 
I would probably steer away from because it's not necessarily my my area of expertise, but that's the, the weaponization of economic dependencies and economic coercion. Do you think that these risks are the proper ones that were identified? Do you think there's anything missing in this list of four risks that you ran through, or do you think they really hit the nail on the head here? I think the first three make an awful lot of sense. And the fourth one is, to my mind, a more straightforward national security question in a, in a slightly broader way. So I think that the critical thing to think about here is they're thinking about sort of dependency. Mm -hmm. I think that's critical. And of course, the, the converse version of dependency would be autonomy, which we all know that they want. They're thinking about sovereignty, which all security strategies should have at their heart. And then I think this question of resilience, because you see it come up an awful lot, but it's typically ill-defined. I would like to put on the record that we should understand uh, resilience in the context of optionality. So it's not the idea that one might aim to maintain an existing supply chain, for example. But in fact, if that supply chain is broken for whatever disruption, as we saw with shipping, for example, in the pandemic, and it was absolute chaos, most of which was coming from, from at least Asia, but primarily China, that you have options. So if I can't get my main supplier to deliver the goods that I need from uh, an industrial area in China, do I have an alternative at home in Europe somewhere that has shorter lead times and can step in during an emergency in order to give me that flexibility delivery? So that's the, I think that's the crux of what they're getting at. But I would yeah counter with what, what you perceive it to be. Yeah, because when I was reading through it lightly, because I, I will preface by the fact that I'm not an expert in this, hence why I asked you on here, Gareth. But when I was reading through the document, some of the, the literature surrounding it, I always thought or I, I had the impression that it was came more out of a fear, right? A fear that Europe's place in the world, as it's been for the past while, is not very secure, especially when these like-minded partners we had in the past, we can't rely on or the partners we're relying on now are no longer so like-minded. So in terms of that, how do we make sure that we actually can move forward to secure the you know, raw resources, the, the protections, the supply chains that we need to be a, you know advanced economy going forward? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the document itself is born of a recognition that the world has changed, a recognition the world is perhaps not as friendly as we may have once hoped to believe. I don't think we actually ever believed it. I think that the rationale of of states and multilateral organizations like, or rather uh, supranational organizations like the European Union have never worked on the premise of blind hope, you yeah. know, um, otherwise they wouldn't exist either. So I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a proactive effort to provide a, an umbrella document, a guiding document that allows us to coordinate our behaviors with regards to our economic and national security um, in a, in a sensible fashion to safeguard all of the things that we think are important as they already identify in the document itself. So, you know, with the, the three pronged approach, as they describe it's the risk mitigation efforts, I think they're covering all the bases. So they want to strengthen the single market. So strengthening a strategic asset they already have makes perfect sense and investing in skills and research and development R and D to do that is also something that they've already done. It's just about coordinating um, those efforts. Then in, in reference to the second prong, if you like, 
the regulatory tools and supporting policy work. So those are the things that they've already implemented. I mean, the, the dual use and export control department within DG Trade is well founded and has been there for a long time. You also got that in the context of defense export control because non-proliferation treaties have existed for a long time and continue to govern that sort of um, policy toolkit, if you like. And then there's been additions which are also useful, such as the uh, the investment screening mechanism, which took took hold in um, 2019, which actually was where I pretty much embarked on my, my journey into this topic. And then, you know, the usual bucket of upholding international order, norms and ideas, um, I think probably implies that where they can't reshore, they're going to friendshore. So they're going to encourage the movement of supply chains or the reordering of supply chains in line with jurisdictions where they believe they have allies. I think like the classic example, which takes Europe out of this context, would be the agreements that the United States has recently signed with India Mm -hmm. in order to pursue a series of strategic objectives um, as they perceive the world today. So I'd say it's a good start. But all of the work comes after you've written the document, right? So you have to actually make sure that intention and action are combined in an appropriate fashion in order to achieve effect. Yeah. And I think that leads to an interesting observation I've seen some making about it, where a lot of what they talk about, you know, the regulations, you know, implementing certain things, you know, the, the attitudes towards, you know, partners, it's great to have guidance from the commission, right? But at the end, these are still things that individual member states also need to be on board for. So do you think that even beyond just a commission laying out this guideline, do you think that in the national capitals around Europe, there's this attitude to actually embark on the ideas presented within the strategy? Or do you think that this is simply just another one of those commission documents where they're super hopeful, they prevent a very glowing plan, but nothing will happen because nobody's on board? I mean, I'm not even going to begin to labor the idea of speaking for 27 different countries. But um, I think that the plan embodies a spirit that lots of national governments are are now um, holding the candle for, if you like. Mm -hmm. In terms of efficacy and implementation, I would say that there are are some challenges that the European Union still deals with, and that's often to do with the, the unanimity requirement. So in an ideal world, we won't have 27 competing economic security strategies sitting underneath this, but rather a rallying cry in terms of what what's strategically important. Um, and that's something that didn't exist back in 2019. So I think that the investment screening mechanism is actually quite a good example of this because it was largely reactive. It was, it was a reactionary tool. And the onus was placed on the member states to conduct the investment screening themselves. It provided guidance, but it didn't tell them that there was a uniform mechanism. It gave them the, the liberty to employ their own tools, which meant that you encouraged variation which could become ultimately contradictory if you want to maintain your own single market but it was also it was also not tied to any sort of strategic thread some narrative running from the top of europe and brussels and everybody that's there all the way down to parliamentary committees and um, civil servants ultimately um, in those 27 different countries Um, so i would say that's that's where things have have improved so i think it's building upon stuff that already put in place but now it's a bit more strategic rather than tactical yeah i I think that's a good way to put it forward because i think at least one of the roles of the commission should be to provide you know 
that overarching look at what embodies the European values, the European approach, you know, deliberate amongst that of the member states and then see how we can make progress on these issues going forward. Because we've seen, for instance, and I mean, not changing topics too quickly, but one of the things I was surprised at reading the document is there's no real mention to specific challenges or crises that could arise. It was just a very general approach. And that might be politically because I, there's no real convergence amongst any of the member states how to deal with an issue such as China, which is perceived much differently amongst the 27 member states in, in Europe, from Austria to Czech, the Czech Republic. There's a stark difference in how they're dealing with investments and stuff flowing in there. I mean, I suppose, but I suppose that, that that's a logical rationale. It should be the case because the context in each country differs, right? Yes. So what they value at a strategic level is not necessarily what, what Brussels sees as most important. And there will be disagreements, as you would expect. Um, we're all very used to that being the case, I think, in in, uh, in Brussels. Um, but the, there's different priorities based on the the nature of their respective economies. Yeah. I think moving now towards, because we've had a few perspectives, and I feel like we're over, you know, we're, we're fairly positive that this is a good approach to take. But I guess... Being a historian, let's throw this back four years and let's say when COVID happened or when the Russian war of aggression kicked off a year ago, if we had this plan in place, do you think it would have made a big difference? Do you think that we've learned from the past to improve what we might be dealing with in the future? It, if it was in place four years ago, I don't think it would have made much of a material difference to the situation we presently find ourselves in in the world and in Europe. If it was implemented 20 years ago, then I you would see um, a material difference, particularly on the topic of uh, industrial resilience and the industrial base. I mean, it's it's a topic that's on people's lips for a variety of reasons, but with my sort of defense hat on, if you like, um, look at all the supplies that we've had to, you know, well, we've willingly donated to the Ukraine. Um, but what became clear very early on was our supplies are pretty limited. And who's you know, sort of manufacturing all of that old school Cold War materiel that we didn't think was relevant anymore, guns and bullets, to be frank. And the answer is not many people at all. The the industry leaders in these areas moved away from that because there was no requirement expressed and cuts to defense spending were rightly made and the peace dividend that people I think in Europe deserved after a long and arduous and slightly, you know, worrying cold war you've got the specter of nuclear annihilation hanging over you you tend to care about defense spending but the reality is because that was never maintained you know it's sort of in peacetime with the pro you know the potential prospect of a war breaking out again maybe that maybe that speaks to something maybe that the fact that people just didn't believe that there was going to be any wars you know it was believed that democracy had won you know we had the end of history um, no. So I, I think like a lot of that stuff. So I think we would still be manufacturing in a way that we were probably back in the 1970s, not in terms of in terms of process, but in terms of what we were manufacturing on the European continent. I don't think we would have offshored to such a dramatic extent the supply chains that we have in all manner of things. I mean, we all saw that right in 2020 all of the weird stuff you couldn't get your hands on because you realized that there was only one company in Europe that was manufacturing egg boxes. So no, I don't think to put any eggs in and there was no toilet paper and all these things, you know, it's, uh, I think 
this would have been dealt with if there was an economic security strategy back in the late 90s yeah. as a hist- with my hat on, I think. But in terms of the most recent times, the last four years, I don't think it would have made a material difference. Yeah. Yeah. So, so hinting about these crises we weathered through, Gareth, as somebody that's, you know, working a bit more in preventing the crises of tomorrow, what do you think the crises of tomorrow are? I don't want to ask you to speculate too much, but either are there lessons we could learn to take into tomorrow or are there specific circumstances you think we need to be really preparing ourselves for? Well, there's one lesson ahead of time. If I'm one of the people preparing for the crisis of tomorrow, then they need to find somebody else. But um, <laughs> don't say that. Market yourself. This is this is your your chance. Wouldn't be as bold as the state that I'm doing that precisely. But there we are. No, I think it's a fair question. I would say, like, I think we've already concluded that this strategy is a step in the right direction. I think mm-hmm. ultimately a strategy is better than none at all. And we can argue the merits of something afterwards. But um, no, as you mentioned, historian by training, I'm pretty wary of predicting the future. But if I was, you know, sort of calling myself a betting man, if you like, I would say the securing a steady supply of critical minerals, which are the bedrock, if you like, of all of these interesting and wonderful technologies that we're, we all use every day and have no idea, y- you need a ready supply of those. Uh, and China dominates something like 90% of the world's rare earth elements. Um, so that's a strategic challenge. And to that extent, I think like more has to be done in reference to this strategy with partners in Africa and Latin America. I recently read in the, the Financial Times about a month ago, I think, that um, the Congo, the DRC, which is always famous for having a, a sort of stranglehold over the world's supply of cobalt for batteries and whatnot, it's starting mm-hmm. to exercise way more agency than previously because that's where it was locked into a lot of contracts with Chinese vendors. Um, and it's now reevaluating those, if you like, mm-hmm. knowing that there's there's this competition going on in a broader sense and thus they've got a good negotiating position. So, you know, going after those, those shared concerns, as it mentions in the strategy, would be sensible. I also yeah. think support for the US in aiding the likes of TSMC will be equally crucial um, for a host of reasons. So to clarify for the listeners, TSMC produce the world's most sophisticated semiconductor chips, which are used in pretty much everything. Um, And if they were not doing that, because there's such a, a, a choke point in the market, if you like, with what they produce, we'd all be sent back to the dark ages if they were unable to do what they do. So helping them build fabs, as they're called, these factories in Europe and in the US and, and, and elsewhere, possibly even India, um, would be uh, a very sensible thing to throw their hat into the ring on. And I think they're doing that. I mean, you see that with the investments they're already trying to provide with the CHIPS Act. Yeah, and, and the American government has themselves been very forcibly getting them to invest in heavy facilities, I think in Texas and elsewhere, where they're really yeah, building that, that's, that's right. I think if so, you put it all together between Europe and Europe and the United States, there's something getting on close towards a um, hundred billion dollars over the next yeah, um, what five or ten years, I think it is, um, committed to committed to this strategic activity. So I think that they're already making steps. But they'll just have to maintain that support because it's an expensive endeavor. I mean, to give it clarity, like there's, we just talked about a part of nearly $100 billion from, from public mm-hmm. fund. But TSMC themselves 
in 2020 committed 125 billion dollars over five years for the <laughs> to match those investments and they're one company so um there's going to be you know need for more capital down the line so i think that that's really important and i think we also touched upon concepts and the importance of definitions and and also testing testing the merits of concepts right in that in that process deliberatively and uh yeah i think like europe as an institution needs to become better defined as a security actor and i think it would probably be helpful they're obviously in a difficult situation because they have to manage the expectations of 27 members um before they even talk about their allies and partners but i do think that they need to get away from simply seeing their value at the level of a sort of regulatory giant and be one that's more, let's say, geared towards, you know, helping with hard security commitments. Because they're in an overlap where in Brussels itself, you've got NATO as well as the European Union. And it's like the famous quip from Kissinger. It's like, who do I call in Europe? Is it Frankfurt? Is it Paris? Is it London? Um, when mm-hmm. I've got a problem. Um, so, so ironing that out, I would say, is the next step. It's nice to have a, an economic security strategy, but that needs to be complemented by a really cohesive national security strategy only at the level of the European Union, I think would be really useful. And then I just think that they they continue to struggle with structural issues, um, structural obstacles um, that probably limit their scope of action. So like I've already mentioned, the unanimity clause continues to be a headache. I know that the French are very keen to remove it for a variety of reasons. Um, And I also think that until there's a fiscal union, um, that's an old argument, right? But um, until they have that in place, or or rather, yeah, until they have that in place, I don't think that they're going to be any better equipped, really, in many in many ways, to deal with whatever crisis moments come up and concurrent sort of management pressures that this place is on the block. So plenty of work to do, plenty of political haggling to be done, you know. But that that's the nature of uh, of working in politics, I suppose. And I think it's a, a thought occurred to me while we were talking about this a second ago, and I, I think it's it's interesting that we see corporations taking more note nowadays of geopolitics, not just government affairs, as a distinct entity for them to operate in. Because I've been noticing a lot more corporations, I think Siemens has been doing this quite prominently lately, a few others, large corporations, they're starting an entire affairs branch, just focus on geopolitics, how their supply chains can be resilient in a world which is not as easy to operate in as more, especially in that, you know, post unipolar phase that we're going towards. So I think it's a, I guess for young people listening, there's definitely a niche there, which I would encourage people to exploit. But <laughs> Yeah, for all of those uh, weary international relations students looking <laughs> True, for a job. True, yeah. Most of these nascent departments have actually got people in with, with some experience so they can teach them something when they arrive. But, you know, there we are. So... I think we're wrapping up. Is there any final words you want to give on the economic uh, security strategy before I'd give my mystery personal question, which I always do? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would say like one thing that I would like to mention is the fact that we have to be very, very 
clear and much more sort of critical of ourselves with the concepts that we try to employ uh, when we're crafting strategy. Um, the one that is my personal bugbear is technological sovereignty. Mm. There is absolutely no time in human history that I'm aware of, I might be exaggerating, um, in which technological leakage and technological sharing hasn't led to a proliferation of technology. So uh, Mustafa Suleiman actually mentioned it really, really succinctly the other day. He said anything that's proved to be intelligent and useful is then proliferated because more people want to use it. It becomes cheaper to deliver and the effect tends to spread around the globe very quickly. And almost any form of intelligent design, that logic is applied to. So to say that you can be, you know, in some way hermetically sealed off maintaining your sovereignty and your autonomy in the context of technological development, I think is pretty laughable. Um, so I would ask them to scratch that from their, their, do their policy documents, but they obviously don't listen to me. So that's, that's something I'll just have to live with. So that would be, that would be an example of something that I think is really important to scrutinize ourselves. Yeah, and I do um, agree because development only happens when you have access to all the tools you have available to you. So progress. Sorry. Yeah, precisely. I mean, you, ha you have to share these things with your allies because what's the point in having allies if they're technologically miles behind you? Because that's where, that's where competitive advantage is derived, ultimately. Yeah. But you had a mystery person. Yes, question. and this harkens back to the last episode we recorded. And I see you s s quickly searching in your eyes to remember what this was about. <laughs> but we recorded one during the midst of the lockdown, if you remember, when everything was being canceled and postponed till, you know, to like... 2023. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and now that we are in 2023, what did you think of the postponed... Uh, COVID products. So I, I remember you were very excited for the new Kendrick Lamar album, which came out a year, year and a half later. The new James Bond movie, which I don't think has released yet, unless I completely forgot about it. No, that uh, has released. Or, or any other uh, reflections on the, the epic movie scene of the past month or so? Well, uh, to be honest, yeah, I think that the, you know, not to downplay things, but that was one of my big early disappointments with the pandemic was the, the delay of No Time to Die. I have subsequently watched it and it's an exceptionally good film and it ended very, very well, even if it was a little bit sad. So that, that was a win. That coming out okay. was, you know. One for one. As for Kendrick Lamar album was very good. Again, quite dark, but nonetheless enjoyable. Two for two, then. He's still got it, you might say. Uh, I can't think of anything else, to be honest. Yeah, I was almost disappointed in the post-COVID scene. Because I felt like so much got pushed back and then none of it ended up coming out anyways. Well, I mean, we got Barbie. True. So, so the, right. the Barbenheimer, I think that that craze paid off for itself. And uh, I quite enjoyed yeah, that. Wow. That was, yeah. that, that was a moment in history. I actually tried to reach out to Mattel to see if they want to do a Barbie episode with me. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't think that would fly by their corporate censors. <laughs> so. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. No, uh, no I, in fairness, it, I did actually go see Oppenheimer. It's a fantastic film, and I think everybody should go see yeah, it. Yeah, and I will make an explicit note to those in Brussels listening. We need a petition for a better IMAX theater because there is one which is not even a true IMAX theater in the entire capital of Belgium. So, yeah. Well, in fairness, actually, thinking about that, to go back to giving you, you know, yet more material for your future podcast. Go for it. There's an important point to draw from Oppenheimer, and that's about proliferation right. and deterrence. I think that we're actually in a similar moment with regards to the use of artificial intelligence and the proliferation of that technology, which will be a lot easier mm -hmm. because it's software. It's easy to move 
ground. You don't have to dig any uranium out of the ground in order to use it. And yeah, the importance of deterrence and, and mechanisms for its use, I think, would give you ample content for a, a subsequent episode. Yeah. Um, not sure I'm the expert to talk to on that, but I'm happy to have a go. I've, uh, I've been thinking about it lately because I do think it's a, a pressing issue at the times. But yeah. No. Anyways, not. it was great catching up, Gareth. If the people listening want to catch up to you or see any work that you might have coming on the future, anywhere they should look towards? Uh, probably LinkedIn. I'm always uh, a bit of a bit of a hawk on my messages, sadly. Yeah. Um, willing to disconnect these days, but... Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. There we are. That's the best place to find me. Yeah, sadly these days. I, I can't say that I'm disappointed that Twitter died and got rebranded as a corpse of an ex, but uh, eh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what the future holds. Anyways, great, great catching up again, Gareth. And I'm hoping that people feel a bit more, you know, secure economically in there from this conversation. Well, it's going to take a bit of time, but I think they'll get there eventually. But thanks for having me. It's been yeah, fun. No worries. Well, until next time then. And then hopefully the, the listeners, uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, uh, share with your friends, family, colleagues, whomever. Um, and let me know what you want to listen to next. I have a few topics, you know, churning through my mind. And then I have another maybe very special format of something that I'm working on. So. Keep your eyes and ears peeled out for this. Exciting. Yes. Well, goodbye. Bye-bye.